0: Now today we're kicking off Playlist. How many of y'all remember pop-up video? Anybody remember VH1? Back in the day when actually music television actually had music on it, okay? Back in the day, okay? We're gonna bring back some pop-up videos Maybe a little bit more modern approach to it every week. We're going to have some fun with that. And every week we like to do a series in the summer where we we say we're a life-giving church, but we like to actually show that. We're going to have some fun over this month and kind of putting some some flesh to that idea. And you'll, you'll get to see that after the service today. We're, we're excited to be able to hand you a little something. Bless you as you as you walk out today. Now, uh, we're going to dive into this series, and it's not just going to be a series about music per se. As a matter of fact, this series is going to focus us on a specific section of the Bible called the Minor Prophets. You might not know what they, am, they are, and so so I want to spend some time setting that up so you understand for the next few weeks where we're coming at. Now, the, the story of just all of God's work, the story of redemption, shows us that God creates everything as good, But then sin turns what was originally created as good into something that it was not meant to be. So God gives um, Adam and Eve a, a garden. And, and then sin enters and, and that garden is corrupted. God takes A- Abraham. Abraham, look at the stars in the sky. All of these stars represent kids. You haven't had kids. And Abraham's old going, there ain't no way in the world. But I will believe God. The book of Hebrews says that Abraham believed God. And it was credited to him as righteousness. There, there's something that happens from the very beginning. God begins to work to create. And so he comes to... to Really a promised land that was promised to him has the child, has Isaac, and then the the story of redemption begins to unfold. And as they're displaced out of the promised land in the famine, and you know the story, they're they're now enslaved in Egypt. God raises up a rescuer, raises up Moses and sends him back. And Moses, I want to take, I want you to deliver my people, take them to the promised land. And the people are rebellious, they don't believe God. God's like, this is the boundary. This is where I want you to go. We, we, don't, we don't trust you. And so God's like, well, we, y'all are going to wander around for about 40 years until all y'all die off. And Then he raises up another leader, raises up Joshua, and they go in. And God gives them a, a checklist. Do all these things when you take over the land. And they do most of these things. Not all of them. From the very beginning, we see this. Our loving God gave us boundaries. But we, and I use the phrase we because this is our story too. We continued to break them. Why does God give us boundaries? Some of it's He wants to protect you. Don't do that. You'll get hurt. Some of it's to restrain us. All right, you're gonna see some people doing that. I know you, I know your life. If you do that, it's not gonna end well. Boundaries to restraint. Sometimes he'll put a boundary in place to discipline us. Y'all ought not to do that. I see you doing it. This is, I need you to ultimately the, the goal of boundaries is to lead. God wants to lead you, and he's gonna go, don't go there, don't go there, don't go. This is the direction. So the story of redemption walks forward and the people of God now want a king. They have a land, but they want a king like every other king. Like every other nation. So God gives them a king. starts with Saul. And Saul's not a very good king. And then it ends up transferring the power out of Saul's family to David. And this is important because David is a good king. He's the first good king. But there's sin in his life, and it ends up paying a price in his house. His his sons are kind of pitted against each other and eventually his son Solomon becomes king. But after David and Solomon, it starts to fall apart. The kingdoms become divided. The northern kingdom of Israel, the southern kingdom of Judah, And they continue to break the boundaries that God had established. They continue to rebel against God. And so God sends foreign nations in to conquer those kingdoms. In the Old Testament, this is so important. God proves Himself to be loving and just at the same time. For many of us, we don't don't understand that you can be both of those. It doesn't have to be one or the other. I can love somebody without dismissing their sin. And I can pursue justice while at the same time loving mercy. It's not one or the other. And God shows us the way to do that. And throughout the rebellion, the history of God's people walking away from God's heart, God raises up prophets. And their work is contained in the Bible. The the. The word of the Lord that was spoken through these prophets. And, it, and it can, it's, there's two categories. There's major prophets. That's Isaiah, Ezekiel, Jeremiah, and Daniel. But then there's minor prophets. And that's what we're going to look at in this series. Now, what makes a major prophet major? It's not the, the important. It's actually the amount of their writing. They wrote a majority of the prophetic writing. So their books are longer. A major prophet was not more important. They just simply wrote the majority. Now, the minor prophets were used by God from 845 B.C. to 430 B.C. to share the word of the Lord with the people of God. God raises them up, and some of them had very intense, important ministries. As a matter of fact, we've talked about some of these. A few weeks ago, my wife shared on Hosea. Hosea, who God speaks to Hosea. He's a religious leader. And he says, I want you to go marry that promiscuous woman. And, you know, all of us who are parents are like, that's never my goal for my kids. But that was God's goal. And God said, in doing this, in the same way that Israel is, is turning its back on my love for him. right. I want you to show my love for this nation of people by by marrying this woman and the way that you love her will show people the way that I love them. Hosea is a minor prophet. It's one of the minor prophets. The book of Jonah. How many of y'all know the book of Jonah, right? Jonah gets swallowed up by, by the fish. That's what we know. That's what we learned in Bible school, right? But here's the thing. Jonah's a prophet. And God speaks to Jonah and says, Jonah, I want you to go to Nineveh. Now, here's the thing. Let me me break something down for you because I want you to see this. Nineveh was in Assyria. Assyria had already helped conquer the kingdom of Israel, the northern kingdom. Jonah hated that nation. It was national pride that kept Jonah from wanting to go to the Assyrians. Jonah, I'm not going there. Gets on a boat going the opposite direction. And God gets him in the belly of a whale, spits him up on the shore. And he does what God told him to do. And and then what happens afterwards is exactly what he told God would happen. The people of Nineveh repented, And at the end of that book, you find Jonah crumpled up in a little ball, complaining to God about how merciful he was. Jonah, the book of Jonah, is a minor prophet. Today, we're going to focus on a book that was written by a young man named Micah. The book of Micah is, I think, in our day and age, a very important book because it reflects a time period that as you look into it, you might see that the day and age that Micah lived is a lot like the day and age that we live in as well. I was kind of doing some research and I came upon this quote. In a, in, in a commentary, look at this. Micah lived in a period of economic revolution, which was proving a mixed blessing. Unfortunately, the influx of material prosperity, look at what material prosperity had done in his day and age. It had spawned a selfish materialism, A complacent approach to religion as a means to achieving human desires and the disintegration of personal and social values. Sound familiar? Look how Leslie Allen wraps this quote up. Look, Age-old sanctions, and what he's referencing here is is what the Word of God had told people to do as their way of life. Age-old sanctions associated with the divine covenant were shrugged off. And social concern was at the bottom of the list of priorities of national and local government officials. Even religious leaders, priests and prophets, did little more than echo the spirit of that period propping up the society that gave them their livelihood. Sound familiar? Sounds familiar to me. A time of economic prosperity when... Things were shifting, and all of a sudden, instead of people longing for the heart of God, they longed to create and craft a comfortable life on this earth. Now, at the time that Micah is preaching, Israel, the kingdom of Israel, is in exile. The northern king, the northern kingdom has been attacked by the Assyrians and the Babylonians. They've been taken off, right? They they are conquered. But the southern kingdom of Judah still stands. And he's ministering, Micah is ministering, during the time of Hezekiah, King Hezekiah. And if you know your Bible, one of the things that you'll know about this is that there's something significant about Hezekiah. In the Old Testament, as you read through the kings, and you go through the books of First and Second Kings, you're going to see that there were a lot of bad kings, But there were a few good kings. And Hezekiah has a very important distinction. He was the bad king that became a good king. He started out selfish. He started out sinful. But he had a come to Jesus moment. Y'all ever had a come to Jesus moment? He had a come to Jesus moment. I love what A.F. Kirkpatrick said about the ministry of Micah. Look at this. Hezekiah's reformation was due to the preaching of Micah. Oh, come on. This young man who God was speaking through had such significance in his day and age that the king turned from his wicked ways and got right with God. That's how significant the book of Micah is. Micah's writing to the people of Israel Right? This is the, the nation. They're, remember, part of them have been attacked. The southern kingdom of Judah is still intact. And he's writing them to show the specific sins that they had committed against God that resulted in their exile. Again, as I go through this list, Y'all gonna, this feels a little bit like the day and age that we live in. Number one, the, their government, now remember, their government was founded on the law of God. Their government was unlawfully seizing property, which meant that the government was taking more than they should from people to do things that they shouldn't do. Number two, civil leadership was failing to lead in a godly way. The people appointed within the communities or elected within the communities or chosen within the communities were doing the same thing that everybody in the culture was doing. They were using selfish motivation to co-opt their own power and use it for their good. And it wasn't just there. It was in the church too. Number three, prophets and priests were now for hire. Oh, you don't... You don't like it when I talk about that? If you'll give a little money to the church, I won't talk about it ever again. Oh, the big donor over there didn't like that message. Well, I'll, I'll go preach something that's different. Look at this, number four. The people of God were engaging in corrupt business practices. You see, it's not just the government. It's not just the local officials. It's not just the... It's, it's everybody... This selfishness is spread throughout all the culture. And finally, number five, the people of God started to believe that personal sacrifice brought about God's blessing. Getting mad at God because I made a big donation to the church and He's supposed to heal my marriage now. Sound familiar? Micah is so significant, and this is so good, that a lot of historians, biblical historians, say that the kingdom of Judah is going to survive for another hundred years before it's taken over by the Assyrians, almost uniquely because of the ministry of Micah. That's how significant his influence was in his day and age. It's a time when, when culture feels like it's changing, the world feels like it's changing, and we have a lot of questions about how do we navigate that, and somehow in the middle of that, Micah becomes a voice that says, let's go this way. You know the song that we watched today that we're featuring, Where is the Love? Is released by the Black Eyed Peas in 2003. It was actually released in the middle of the, the post 9-11 climate in our country when when there was fears of terrorism and war and all the stuff that we felt during that time and it was really trying to ask this big question that Micah is asking in his book how do we navigate challenging cultural seasons what what is God going to ask of us and I don't know if you've been paying attention to the news. How many of y'all just feel like it's time to turn off the news? Right? It's, it's a little depressing if you look at the... I, I'm just pulling my Facebook feed and read what everybody else is saying. It feels like, man, this is. I don't even know if I want to go to Walmart today. You know what I mean? It's just it's a little rough. It's where we are today, isn't it? It is. And the truth is, is that these books that we're going to try to talk about for the next five weeks, the minor prophets, they're not the easiest to read. I love what Martin Luther, the great reformer, said about the prophets. He said this, the prophetic writers have an odd way of talking. Like people who instead of proceeding in an orderly manner, they just ramble off from one thing to the next so that you can't make heads or tails of them or see what they're getting at. You ever read a book in the Bible like, that's a, that, that sounds about right. Now Micah's book actually follows a pattern. And this is important to see because if you don't see this, you'll kind of miss out on some of the texture of what's going on. He will deliver the Word of God, God's Word. And it's a word of judgment. You're sinning. You messed up. This is what's going to happen. But it always is followed by a word of hope. There's a word of judgment you're doing this, but if your hearts will turn back to me, here's the hope. And it lets us see that God is, as I told you earlier, both loving and just. Here's the judgment, but if you'll repent, if you'll turn from it, there's mercy, there's hope. Love, God's love is graceful and it's merciful. Grace, I don't deserve it. Mercy, I deserve something else. That's what love, how God's love is expressed. And God shows Himself through this book. Now there's several sections. If you go back and read it, it won't take you long. It's a great book to dive into and to study. Chapters 1 and 2, kind of the first section of it, it talks about the penalty of our sin and the the promise of God's mercy. The the middle part of the book, chapters 3, 4, 5, again, it's not very long. It talks about going through seasons of affliction. when when we're struggling with stuff. And it talks about really the great theme in the middle of the book is how we can have hope when we're actually going through a season of affliction that God is, He's going to take care of us. It's not, life's not over. And then the book ends by really talking about grace and how grace wins over sin. It's such a powerful book. We're going to zero in on how He wraps up That book. And you know, as he's wrapping up this case throughout the book that God has been building towards Israel, he says this in Micah 6, verse 8. And we're almost going to exclusively look at this verse today Micah 6, verse 8. He has shown you, O mortal, what is good. And what does the Lord require of you? How many of y'all felt like I need to ask that recently? God, what do you want me to do in a time like this? And what does the Lord require of you? To act justly, to love mercy, and to walk humbly with your God. Today we're going to deal with the question, how should we navigate difficult and challenging seasons? And I'm going to give you four things from this verse that we all need to do when we go through a season that's difficult and challenging. Number one, let's look at this. He has shown you the same verse. Look at this verse again. Where are we? are He has shown you, O mortal, what is good. And what does the Lord require of you? To act justly, to love mercy, and to walk humbly with your God. He's shown you what is good. He's shown you what is good. The first thing in this is to remember how God has been good to you. Remember how God has been good to you. What's God shown you about Himself in the past? You ever been there? Like you worried about something and God shows up? Didn't know how you were going to make it and God got you through it? What's God shown you about Himself in the past? The truth about God is our doubts in God over our future are settled by His past faithfulness to us. When God showed up in the past... What He was doing is giving you a gift to help you navigate your future. You know, in Micah 6, this, when this verse drops, He's actually wrapping up this case. It's kind of like He's a lawyer in this moment. And He's wrapping up a case that He's building. It's kind of like God versus the people. And He's really building a case of His goodness. Earlier in that chapter, verse 3 and 4, look at what God says. Look at this. My people, what have I done to you? How have I burdened you? Answer me. I brought you up out of Egypt and redeemed you from the land of slavery. What's he telling them? Look at your past. You're questioning my goodness in your your present and you're doubting my goodness in your future. Just simply look at your past. Haven't I been good to you? What's your past telling you about your future? What kind of hope do you have? About the future. Hebrews says this. Look at this. I love this. Let us hold unswervingly to the hope we profess. For he who promised is faithful. He who promised is faithful. Listen. Some of us have been there in the past when stuff wasn't going the way we thought it needed to go. We lost our job. Y'all ever been there? You lose a job? Stuff ain't going the way. You lose some a source of financial stability, and all of a sudden you're you're on your knees. God, I don't, I don't know what I'm gonna do in this season. I feel broken. I don't, I want to provide for my family. And then what happened? God took care of you. He got you from that point to where you are right now. And what happens is that God in that is preparing you for the future. There's gonna come a time that you're gonna need to remember, God just showed up then and you'll show up now right now in this country when we're so worried about an economy that's going into recession some of us sense the heart of God saying I want you to give I want you to be generous and we're going God I don't know if I can do you know what's happening in the world with us right now do you see what's and God's going listen if you'll obey me what happens in your house won't be what happens out there it'll be different for you some of us have walked through this in the past I've pastored now through two different recessions. And I've seen God do something in my house that was different than what was happening out in the world. Because the God who's God over all the earth is God over all the earth in the middle of a recession and I've been there. And I've seen God take care of me. How do I know? Because I can reflect on the goodness of God. Oh, we sang that song just a little bit ago, didn't we? Every once in a while, we need a song like that that we sing that reminds us of the goodness of God. God, I know that I've been broken before and You've healed my heart. God, I know that I've been through a difficult season and You carried me through. I know that it's tough right now. I know that it's not easy right now, but You're still the same God that brought me through then and I'm going to trust that You're going to bring me through now. We need to remember and reflect on the goodness of God. That's the first thing. Let's go back to the verse and we'll see the second thing. Look at this. He has shown you, O mortal, what is good. And what does the Lord require of you? To act justly, to love mercy, and to walk humbly with your God. To act justly. Can I just put that in modern day personal language? Number two. Make justice personal. Make justice personal. We live in a world that is very concerned with justice. We got a lot of socially conscious people who are overreacting to things all around the world. There's too many kittens at the Humane Society, there's this and there's this and those kids don't have enough to eat and those teachers don't have enough number two pencils. And It doesn't mean any of those things are not real things. But can I just help you out for a moment? You can't care about everything. And in a a social media-driven world, we're baited into trying to care about everything. I was talking to, I have a friend who's a, a licensed therapist. We were actually talking about this, and I, I, I shared that. And I, th- I think that we're just, as a culture, we're being told, I need to care about this, and I need to care about this. And he said, yeah, I mean, care is a limited commodity. You can't care about everything. And really, for some of us, our souls are a little bit like butter that's spread off over too much bread. There's just, it's not substantive. We need to watch the way we approach justice. What is justice? Justice, just simply put, is making wrong things right. It's making wrong things right. Now, if you paid attention, Our culture cares a lot about justice. Today's culture is all about like, y'all need to get it right, and y'all need to get it right, and if these people would get it right, some of us are even like, if my spouse would just get it right. Right? I preached a series about a year ago on a story that Jesus tells in Matthew 7. I want you to see this. This is coming from the son of a carpenter. Look at what he says in Matthew 7. Look at this. Why do you look at the speck of sawdust in your brother's eye and pay no attention to the plank in your own eye? How can you say to your brother, let let me take that speck out of your eye when all the time there's a huge plank in your own? Now now what he's saying would have been very familiar for Jesus. Jesus would have... they, They didn't wear safety equipment back in his day, okay? They didn't have those handy-dandy, uh, like, eyeglasses to wear when you're cutting wood, okay? He would have gotten some sawdust in his eye. He knew what that was like. And if you've ever got some sawdust in your eye, you know what happens. You can't see a daggum thing after that happens. You need help. You need somebody to come help you out. But Jesus is making a point here that a lot of times we're trying to get that out of somebody else's eye because we can see y'all got, y'all got an issue, but we got a bigger issue here I got a two by four running through my face and I'm over here trying to help you get a speck of sawdust out of your eye watch what he says in the next verse look at this you hypocrite first take the plank out of your own eye and then you will see clearly to remove the speck from your brother's eye now just stop here he does not say stop trying to get that speck out He doesn't say that. But He is saying that there's something more substantial in here that I've got to get out before I can do that. Now notice, what does Jesus... I'm just going to read this. Look at this. What does Jesus call us when we're outwardly focused on justice but not letting God right the wrongs in our own hearts? A hypocrite. And I'm just going to say it because somebody needs to. We got a lot of people that are living hypocrisy right now because they're trying to make a lot of other people. Y'all need to get that right and you need to get that right and you need to get that right and they're not addressing what's happening in their own hearts. Jesus never says, hey, don't try to help somebody out. But he does say, get that log out of your own eye. I think that what Micah is showing, live justly. That's what he says. Your actions are your choice. The way you live, the choices you that's your choice. So make the choice. And this is how I put it. Make justice personal before you make it public. Some of us God might have called you to get into the public arena and to work with some people and to help some people get better, but you need to get on your knees and let God get some stuff right in you before you start trying to make it public. Make justice personal. before you. You want to know why that's so important? Because when you've been the person that in your own perspective you know that I'm not getting it right, All that arrogance that's there when you're trying to tell somebody else, it kind of goes away. And it'll be tempered in a different way when you try to help somebody. Probably in a way they'll be willing to receive it when you've walked through it. Make justice personal before you make it public. Let's go back for number three. Look at this. Micah 6.8 He has shown you, O mortal, what is good. And what does the Lord require of you? To act just to love mercy, and to walk humbly with your God. Number three, how do we navigate times like this? In the end, let the love of God have the final say. For too many of us, the final say is our thoughts, the way I want it to be. This This is how I understand things. We need to stop. We need to let the love of God have the final say. Let the love of God. And what is God's love? We said this earlier. It's God's merc- mercy and God's grace. Those are two sides of that coin. right? Grace is an unmerited gift. I don't deserve it, but God gave it to me when Jesus died on the cross. Right, he paid the price for me to receive salvation. I don't deserve it, but it's a free, unmerited gift from the heart of God for me. Mercy is... Is different. Mercy is an unmerited elimination of consequences. I should have been on the cross. I should have been the one killed. But God's mercy says, no, I've already punished Him. I'm going to take those consequences from you. And I've already put them on Jesus. God's love is shown. It's put on display through His grace and mercy. And the truth about all of us is we are good with that as long as we're on the receiving end. As long as I'm the one getting the grace, I'm the one getting the mercy. In Matthew 18, Jesus tells a story about a king and a servant. It's very important. I want you to hear this parable. He, he's trying to talk about the mercy of God and how we kind of interact with the mercy of God. And he says it's a lot like a servant that owed the king 10,000 bags of gold. i be honest with you never held a bag of gold ever if I had I don't know that I'd let go of it okay just up front okay when Jesus says to his crown that he owed him 10,000 bags of gold they would have been like that's I have no idea how much money that is that's like me saying a bazillion dollars it's not even a number okay but you know if I said I owed the government a bazillion dollars that's a lot of money you can't pay that Kevin That's exactly the point he was trying to make. The servant owed the king a bazillion dollars. And so the king goes, go get that man. Bring him in here. You owe me a bazillion dollars. I'm going to throw you in jail until you can afford to pay me that. Now, what what does his crowd understand? He can't pay it. There's no way. Nobody can pay a bazillion dollars. Jeff Bezos can't pay a bazillion dollars. All right? So what's happening? He's going to be put in jail in prison he'll never get out the guy throws himself at the mercy of the king and the king out of his goodness and mercy forgives his debt everybody in the crowd's going what the king forgave him a bazillion dollars i just wish somebody forgive me like five thousand dollars on my credit card right you know what i'm saying some of y'all are like yes amen that's that's my prayer today right So this is what happens after he's forgiven that. Look at this. Matthew 18. But when that servant went out, he found one of his fellow servants who owed him a hundred silver coins. Now, this is a lot of money still, but this is a, a, his crowd would have understood this could be paid back. And he grabbed him and began to choke him. Pay back what you owe me, he demanded. Now, he's just been forgiven all that debt, but he's doing this. His fellow servant fell to his knees and begged him, Be patient with me and I will pay it back. It's the exact same thing he did before the king. But watch what happened. But he refused. Instead, he went off and had the man thrown into prison until he could pay the debt. How he reacts was legally justified. He could do that according to the law. The king hears about it, though. He did what? After, I forgave that kid a bazillion dollars. Bring him back to me. Brings him in. And when he walks into the presence of the king, the king goes, you wicked servant. You wicked servant. I forgave you your debt. And then you had him thrown in prison. He rescinds his mercy. Take him away. And this time he's not just going to prison. Take him away. Put him in prison and torture him. Jesus says this in the very next verse. This is how my heavenly Father will treat each of you unless you forgive your brother or sister from your heart. To love mercy is to love to see God's mercy extended to others. Some of y'all need to get some people in your life that you can cheer for it that you can get excited for. That you know when they need God to show up and you're going to pray until He does and you're going to celebrate when He does. Some of y'all need to get excited about seeing God do something in somebody else's life because for too many of us, we're only excited about the mercy of God when we get it. But to love mercy is to see the mercy of God extended to other people. We to learn to love mercy and let the love of God have its final say. And then number four, look at this. Has, has He shown you, O oh mortal, what is good? And what does the Lord require of you to act justly, to love mercy, and to walk humbly with your God? The fourth thing that we need to do if we're going to navigate difficult times is we need to humble ourselves before God and others. Please notice that said, not just before God. Because pride will ultimately find its way into your relationship with God, but it starts in your relationship with others. We're constantly tempted to think I'm better than them or... I, I've got it figured out and they don't. We're, we're always living in that choice between humility and pride. Pride is the conscious or unconscious choice to elevate yourselves above others, and eventually it'll be above God. But see, humility is a choice too. One of my friends said this, and I'll never forget it that the, the Bible never says that God's going to give you. Humility. It always asks you to choose humility. Choose humility. And if you won't choose it, your pride will lead to you being humbled. You know what the word humiliated means? It means to be made humble. Some of y'all have lived through that before. Humility... He's a choice. Jesus showed us the way. Philippians 2, look at this. And being found in appearance as a man, he humbled himself. The God of all the universe, the co-creator of everything we've ever known, humbled himself by becoming obedient to death, even death on a cross. Jesus looked into the heart of the Father and said, whatever you ask is what I'm here to do. To humble yourself is to consistently place yourself under God's leadership. If we're going to make it through a season like this, we've got to do it through humility. And while this seems so simple, we just often get it wrong, don't you? Look at this verse again. I'm going to just read it. He has shown you, O mortal, what is good. And what does the Lord require of you? To act justly, to love mercy, and to walk humbly with your God. It seems so simple, but we often blow it, don't Don't we? I'm just going to go back through and show you how we blow it. Number one, we forget the goodness of God after He's been faithful. God showed up in your past. Oh, He was there. There's that season when nobody else was there, but He was there, holding your hand and walking you through it. And it's so easy in a moment like this to forget how good God has been in the past. But there's a recession, but you've been through a recession. But this is happening, but you've been there before. Remember the goodness of God, but we forget it. We forget the goodness of God after He's been faithful. Then what? Live justly, but we we desire justice for others while not addressing our own hearts. But they got to get it right, and if they could get it right, and if my husband could finally get this right, to love mercy. We only love mercy when it's for us, but then deny it for others. And then to walk humbly with your God. What do we, we exalt ourselves before others in God. If I don't tell them how good I am, nobody's gonna notice. If I don't brag, nobody's gonna give me attention. I've come to see that the things that we try to get out of selfishness are are much more uh, attracted through selflessness. That that we, we, we actually attract those into our lives, not by being selfish, not by being prideful. So maybe today, let me just give you some action steps from this. Maybe today you need to do one of these things. Maybe today you need to remind yourself of the goodness of God. You need to remember when God showed up in your past. That prayer that you prayed. That you're now living in the fulfillment of that prayer. Remind yourself of the goodness of God. Maybe two, you need to commit to pursuing, right, writing the wrongs in your own heart. Pursue that. Doesn't mean that I won't help my brother and my sister out, but first I'm going to get this two by four out of my eye, so that I can see correctly. Commit to pursue writing. The wrongs in your own heart. Then, number three, pursue loving to see God's mercy intersect other people's lives. For some of us, we, we need a list of people that we're gonna cheer for. I'm, I'm gonna pray for them. I know they're I'm gonna cheer for them when they succeed. I'm gonna celebrate them because I I, I wanna see the mercy and the grace of God on their lives. And then the walk humbly. We just need to humbly submit our lives to God's leadership. You know, God wants to be your friend. We sing that in that song. I've known you as a father and I've known you as a friend. But the only way He gets to be your friend is if you make Him Lord first. And you walk with Him. And you walk with Him. And then out of that walking together, there becomes a friendship. Friendship. But you've got to submit your life to Him. You don't come into a relationship and a friendship with God on equal terms. He's the boss. Thanks for listening. This podcast has been a production of Vortex Church in Albemarle, North Carolina. For more information on our church, we encourage you to visit us online at vortexchurch.com.